Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone opportunity to be spiritually prepared to study the word this evening. Scripture teaches that we are to live our Christian life in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit using terms such as walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, and that these are key terms which describe the believer walking in fellowship with God. But yet when the believer sins, that fellowship is broken and it is recovered through confession of sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God. And at that instant, he forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness so that uh, we are restored to fellowship and we resume that walk by means of God, the Holy Spirit. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful, so grateful for all that you've provided for us, for all that you have supplied us for us spiritually as well as physically in order to live out our life and in order to accomplish that which you have uh, given us to accomplish. Father, we continue to pray for those who are involved with the uh, camp starting this week for the travel, that they would all those coming from all over the country would be safe in their travels. You would watch over them and that there would be no mishaps. Father, we pray for those who are going to be teaching, those who are going to be leading, that they will be prepared and that uh, the uh, minds of the kids who are there will also be prepared to uh, respond to what is taught that uh, this might be a spiritually profitable time for them. Now, Father, we pray for us as we continue our study in Romans 6 and as we get into what you have revealed to us about the spiritual life, that we may be challenged, strengthened, and encouraged. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began our study in uh, Romans 6, and Romans 6, 7, and 8 is the strongest and possibly the broadest um, or the, the, the most in-depth uh, exposition of spirituality and the spiritual life that we have from the hand of Paul. But, of course, so much of Scripture really does relate to the spiritual life. Every passage in Scripture is talking about one of two things, how to become righteous before God, how to have eternal life, be regenerate, uh, something along those lines, what, what we usually refer to as uh, phase one salvation, that is moving from spiritual death to spiritual life uh, where we become a child of God. And then the everything else relates to the uh, the spiritual growth. It relates to sanctification. It relates to somehow learning about who God is and what his plan and purposes are in history, learning how to think, how to live, how to relate to one another in so many different ways that we uh, reflect in our life the character of Jesus Christ. But this whole concept of spirituality today is really confusing for so many people because uh, people come into the Christian life with a lot of baggage. We saw an example of this in our study on Tuesday night in Acts chapter 8 uh, with Simon the, the one who's called Simon Magus or Simon the Magician, uh, the Simon the Sorcerer, that he's saved clearly, but he enters into the Christian life, but, he still, but that doesn't mean his opinions, his ideas, his values, uh, his hopes and dreams have, have changed. They haven't been... Um, 
uh, overhauled by the Word of God yet. There hasn't been that process of Romans 12.2 that we are to uh, not let our minds be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renovation of our thinking. It takes time to have our thinking uh, renovated, and some people are more resistant to that than other people. But in a short amount of time, as we see in the situation in Acts 8, a person is saved, but within just uh, 24, 48, 72 hours or whatever it took, it doesn't take, uh, it, it, it takes a lot longer than that to really understand and to rethink uh, whatever spiritual baggage, preconceptions, or convictions we had uh, prior to salvation. And we live in a world today where there's so much confusion. There's a lot of confusion outside of the, for lack of a better term, biblically sound evangelical churches. And then we get into the so-called biblically sound evangelical churches, and there's a lot of confusion there. And one of the things I try to teach pastors and especially younger pastors that are beginning is how important it is to clearly understand other views and other uh, ways in which uh, these ideas are taught and believed because you never know who's in your congregation who just walked in tonight or last week or last year or some other time fairly recently and what their background is. When I was at one church, I had a lady in the church who had grown up with a mixed heritage of uh, classic Pentecostal theology in her family, several generations, and on one side, and Quakerism on the other side. And she had heard these sort of, in some sense, conflicting ideas. In another sense, they were similar because they're both uh, uh, quasi-mystical, that she had a hard time just comprehending what I was saying because it was so different from what she had heard. And that's the learning process. We all learn, we, we learn something a certain way, and then later on we discover that maybe that's not quite right. But it takes hearing the truth 5, 6, 8, 10, 20, 30, 40, some cases 70, 80, 100 times, and that's for the smart people. Uh, before we start to really understand, then we have those aha moments. And we go, that's that's what he's saying. That's what this means. That's why I've always seemed a little uh, confused about trying to understand certain passages of Scripture. Uh, the Christian life is pretty simple, but we really do kind of mess things up a lot by uh, a lot of bad theology. A lot of so-called pop Christianity today is pop Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. And uh, sadly, we have uh, a problem today as well because in the last 100, 200, 100 to 150 years in American evangelical churches, there has been a uh, an attitude of opposition to um, advanced training in, in seminaries. And one of the reasons for that, which I think is in some sense uh, very understandable at least, is that with the rise of uh, 19th century liberalism in the late 19th century up through what I think we're going through today is sort of the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy part two. And the sad part is most of the so-called fundamentalists, I use that in the classic term, those who are basically Bible believers, most Bible believers don't know it. And most uh, Bible-believing pastors have have really not awakened to the fact that many of the trends that have been shaping the churches in the last uh, 30 to 50 years are now coming to fruition, and it's a poisonous fruit that's coming out of the, out of the tree uh, because the roots were really planted in the uh, post-existential or post-modernist worldview that came into play in, in the 70s and had a huge impact on changing church. If you don't understand that, just some of you are older, you can remember this. Some of you are younger, you probably your idea of this is probably shaped more by a caricature. But if you, you go back and you look at how church w- was done, 
50 or 60 years ago. It wasn't different from how it was done 150 years ago or 250 years ago or 350 years ago or 450 years ago. But it got radically transformed coming out of the 60s. Now, that ought to awaken you to the fact that, hmm, maybe that's not right if the church is basically focused on the Word as the centerpiece of everything that is done in church, not in word, because there are a lot of churches who say they do in word, but it's not so indeed. And they've changed everything. A person who was going to church in 1935 in the United States and was plopped down in a church today, they were going to First Baptist Church of whatever in 1935 and went to First Baptist Church of whatever in 2005, they would be shocked they would be appalled at, at, how, at the transformation that took place. And this transformation primarily occurred coming out of the 60s. And it's because a lot of people came into the church with all that cultural baggage, didn't get it overhauled, and overhauled the church. Instead, the church used to be a place where the family of God came to meet to learn how to be effective in taking the word out to the world, which is the biblical pattern. Jesus said to go and as you go, going out, uh, make disciples of all nations. And today we have a church philosophy that is has swept evangelical churches in the last 40 or 50 years where you're going to do what you do in church so that unchurched Harry or unchurched Mary can feel comfortable coming to church. Well, an unbeliever should never feel comfortable coming to church. He shouldn't hear things that make him feel comfortable because there should be a radical confrontation between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. He should be aware that the culture of the Christian family is not the culture of the pagan family. And yet when the culture of a local church is made to adapt in such a way that unchurched Harry can... uh, can feel comfortable, then we have a, a major problem. And that's that, that idea has been what's gone down uh, throughout the church. Now, as a result of that, we have so many people who come in from into the church from different backgrounds. They come from good denomination background, perhaps. They come from weak, uh, independent, or non-denominational church backgrounds. They come from, like in the case of the example I use, Quaker background, they come from dispensational backgrounds, they come from reform backgrounds, they come from no background whatsoever. But they all have in their head an idea of what the spiritual life is or what it means to be spiritual. And so it's important to answer these questions, what is spirituality, what does it mean to be spiritually alive or to have a spiritual life? Uh, learning how to acquire a spiritual life that you're actually, the Bible teaches, born spiritually dead, but you're physically alive. There is no spiritual life there. And yet, even in, among so-called even, self-identified evangelicals, surveys indicate that they think there's a spiritual life prior to trusting Christ. Vast majority. Obviously, they haven't read their Bible or been taught anything in their Bible. But that's because of the influence of the world. That's that baggage that they bring with them that hasn't been dumped yet. They still have thinking, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, to conform to the world that hasn't yet been transformed by the renewing of their, their life. We have to learn how that spiritual life is matured and what the new goals are for the spiritual life, how that life is nourished, what the means of spiritual growth are, what the methods are uh, of spirituality. And one of the confusing things is, is that over 2,000 years of Christianity, there is just a smorgasbord of ideas that promise that if you do this, you too can be spiritual. If you follow this method, you too can have victory in your Christian life. If you just learn to do this, and it's become even more complicated or distracting in the last 150 years because you have various forms of psychology that have then been merged with various theological forms to morph into just an innumerable amount of, of uh, false choices at the spirituality smorgasbord. 
And so it's hard sometimes for people to to really get into the Word and to understand some things because they we all have this tendency to read something in light of our own frame of reference rather than learning to read something in light of the author's frame of reference. We want to fit what he says into what we already understand rather than letting what he says challenge and shape what we think. And see, that's the purpose of Scripture according to Second Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17, that the Word of God is breathed out by God and is profitable for, first of all, doctrine or teaching, instruction for uh, teaching, for instruction, for correction, in, and uh, instruction in righteousness. And we're to be corrected. We're to be rebuked, corrected in, um, in our thinking by our confrontation with the Word of God. But we live in a world today when people don't really want that. They, they don't want to go someplace and be corrected. They just want to go someplace and have their, their ideas, their values validated and affirmed. And if we don't get it at this place, then we'll go down the road to the, uh, you, you know, the, the, the everything for everybody church. And they'll affirm whatever we, we believe because they just really want our billfold in the church. They're not really concerned about, about truth. So we have to look at this in terms of uh, a lot of different dimensions. Now, last time, as as I was wrapping up Romans 5, making our transition over into uh, Romans 6, uh, I I just want to cover some key things. And then where I stopped was talking about uh, some key concepts that are present in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Uh, tonight I want to do a little bit more of an overview, especially of just chapter 6. But Romans 6, 7, and 8 talks about this idea of how the justified believer is supposed to live. And Romans 6 focuses on understanding the foundation for that spiritual life. And that foundation is what happened in that instant that we trusted in Christ as Savior when we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that just changes everything. Uh, the main command coming out of that section is that we are no longer to live under the authority of the sin nature, but we are to live uh, under the authority of God, and we are to pursue righteousness. That raises another question, which is, well, how do we pursue righteousness? Do we do that just by going out and being moral? Do we do that by just taking the uh, the ideas in the uh, in the Mosaic Law and just work really hard at doing the right thing? Is that the same as being spiritual? And this is where the Apostle Paul is absolutely brilliant in Romans chapter 7 because he knew the Mosaic law inside and out. He had uh, thorough training in the Mosaic law as a a rabbinical student, as the key uh, prize student of one of the greatest rabbis of the Second Temple period, Gamaliel. And so no one knew the law great more than, than Saul of Tarsus. And no one attempted to observe it in its minutia more consistently than Saul of Tarsus. And in his conclusion of Romans 7, he basically says that the law, even though the law is good, all it did was expose the fact that I was a sinner and I could not obey the law. Now, what's interesting is that's essentially what his conclusion was regarding the law towards the end of uh, Romans chapter 5. And last time I pointed this out to you in verse 20 where he states, Moreover, the law entered, that is, entered into human history, that the offense might abound. It's not that people became more sinful, but in the explanation of sin and the identification of sin, people became more aware of, of how sin pervaded every aspect of their thinking and every aspect of their being. And so if you have this sort of biblically robust idea of what sin is, then you can't ever come up with the idea that, that we can somehow completely expunge it from our life, wash it out of our life. We can't say, well, I can achieve some level of perfection. And, uh, and I've heard people say this, that they haven't sinned in so many years. Well, the problem with that is you have a really wimpy view of sin. You've reduced sin to three or four things, and you've ignored a whole host of other things 
that are indeed sin. So Paul recognizes this, and, and in Romans chapter 7, he essentially says that no matter how hard he tried to obey the law and to keep the law, he basically came to realize that that he was carnal, as he says in verse 14, I am carnal, sold under sin. And no matter what I do, no matter how right it is, how much I want to do the right thing, I end up doing the wrong thing, and no matter how much I want to avoid the wrong thing, I always... Um, end up uh, doing it. And so he, he's in this tension. But there's one thing that's not mentioned yet in the, in the whole flow of, of uh, Romans 6 and Romans 7. There's one missing element, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned until we get to chapter 8. And the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding the spiritual life for the believer in this age because only in this age is every believer indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Only in this age is every believer uh, potentially empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Only in this age are we uh, commanded or believers commanded to walk by the Spirit. Only in this age are we led by the Spirit. Only in this age does the Spirit make the difference between the believer who is progressing and the believer who is regressing. And so when we get to chapter 8, we get the answer that's important for understanding the Christian life. But Romans 6 helps to understand what we're to know as the foundation or as the basis, and I pointed out that it's really significant to understand some vocabulary. And one of the first of these is the idea of death. You have this comparison, this contrast comparison and contrast between death and life all through the Scripture, but you have it in Romans 6, 7, and 8. So we've just gone through this many times. I want to get this back into your head that the Bible speaks of seven different kinds of death. So whenever you read about death and dying in the Scripture, we need to ask, what kind of death or dying are we speaking about? There's spiritual death, which is separation from God. Because we're separated from God, we have a semblance of life, which is physical, but it's only partial life. It's only a biological life. It is not the fullness of life that God gave to uh, Adam in the garden. We ha- then have physical death. Physical death is the separation of the immaterial part of man, his, his soul from his body, so that he is no longer physically alive. There's the mention of the second death, which is the eternal separation from God in terms of eternal condemnation. James uh, 2.26 talks about operational death. This is for the believer that he is trying to do everything in his own power. It's basically equivalent to walking according to the sin nature, trying to pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps in order to be uh, spiritual. We also have... uh, Positional death. Positional death is when we're identified with Christ in his death on the cross. That's our position. We, uh, and that becomes the foundation for understanding the spiritual life in Romans 6. Uh, temporal death, that is uh, the ongoing, uh, uh, when the believer continues in um, carnality, he is, he, he's alive spiritually, but he's, he's dead. Um, in terms of non-productive works. Uh, Sexual death in Romans 4, 16 to 21, in reference to Adam Adam and Sarah. So at the conclusion of of Romans 5, Paul talks about the law coming so that by further uh, revelation, there's a greater understanding of what sin is and how pervasive uh, sin is in the life of the individual. See, arrogance, the arrogance of your sin nature and my sin nature always seeks to rationalize sin. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I have. And probably by the time I was two or three years old, like you, I had become a master rationalizer of sin. We are professional self-justifiers when it comes to anything that we do that isn't right. And we figure out some way to justify it and make it right. And this goes all the way back to Adam after um, after the fall. He told God immediately, well, it's not my fault. Uh, it's her fault. But it's also your fault because you gave her to me. So he's avoiding everything. Uh, but where, what Paul is saying here is that 
under the law, we became tremendously aware of sin and its abundance and pervasiveness, and that actually in verse 21 he says sin reigned over everything in our life, and everything is dead. Everything in the world is dead. We have this semblance of life. There's technology. There's a, a tremendous amount of entertainment, a tremendous amount of things that you can do for fun and enjoyment. There are uh, things that you can do that challenge you to great achievement. You can become very successful in life and make tremendous amounts of money and have a tremendous amount of comfort. But everything isn't what you think it is. No matter what we do, no matter what we buy, everything eventually falls apart, breaks down, has to be painted, has to be vacuumed, has to be repaired, has to be tuned up. Uh, everything falls apart eventually. Nothing is what we think it is, and nothing provides us the measure of joy that we think it should, because, and it shouldn't because we're living in a fallen world, and everything's going to fall apart. Everything's been corrupted by sin. Sin reigned in death. But what happened with Christ is that sin is overwhelmed by grace. And in terms of the personal application of this in your life and my life, is that when we trust Christ as Savior and we became justified, sin is so overwhelmed by the grace of God in our life that its hold, its tyrannical dominion over our soul, is completely, finally, and totally broken. It's not removed but it's broken so that we no longer have to sin, whereas prior to salvation we're compelled to sin. We only have one choice but to sin. Paul puts it in Romans 6 as being slaves to sin. Now, in contrast to this sin and death, grace brings uh, the opportunity to, for, to produce righteousness and what? Eternal life. Not just eternal life in terms of after death, but life here and now. And so this brings up another category, which is life in the Bible. We had our different kinds of death, and the Bible talks about some different kinds of life. I haven't completed all the different passages that relate to these, but I wanted to just put a couple in here as an example. There's physical life talked about in the Bible. There's spiritual life talked about in the Bible. There's also eternal life talked about in the Bible, that is, life without end, a quantitative view of eternal life. And then uh, eternal life is also used in some context to refer not just to life everlasting, but the richness and the fullness of life uh, that we have today. And, um, and then we also have positional life, as seen in Romans chapter 6, because we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and what? Resurrection, that newness of life that we have in Christ. So there's a, that positional life that we all have, have in Christ. Now, there's some different words in the Greek that are used to talk about life. One of them is soul. And this was sort of an idiom in Greek in the first uh, century in the uh, ancient world is that you would talk about a person's life, you, you would talk about them, that they love their life, and sometimes the word soul is used, that, uh, oh, don't, don't lose your life or lose your soul, and so it just sort of stood for the entirety of the person. You are, your soul is who you are, and so it became a metaphor for the wholeness of a person's life. And we find examples of it used that way not only in uh, the New Testament but also in secular literature in the um, uh, early, you know, late first, uh, early first century in that, that period of time and earlier before, in the two or three centuries before Christ. Then you have this other word, helikian, which is used of Matthew 6.27 that... Um, uh, no matter how much you worry, you can't add a, a span to your life. It's a measurement term. So it's talking about the, the your life span. Uh, you can worry, 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 worry. You can take all of the, and I'm not knocking health food or vitamins or any of those things or taking, or, or, or taking wise precautions or medicine or anything like that. You can do everything in the world you want to. But God has determined the, your number of days. He's not determined the number of hairs on our heads, and he's determined uh, the length of our life. And we can do everything in the world 
to have uh, to, to have a wonderful time. In fact, some of you know people. I know some people who have been extremely health conscious. They they were eating health food before anybody knew what health food was. They were taking every known supplement uh, they possibly could, and yet they have early onset form of cancer and die very young. Uh, I had a very close friend I grew up with in church and uh, working at Camp Penile who was just the picture of health, a great athlete, and he was out running with his wife when he was 24 years old and dropped dead of a massive coronary and was dead before he hit the ground. And, um, you know, from all outward signs, he had done, you know, he, he had never, he had no vices, he had never done anything, you know, that would have created that. Uh, nobody really understood why that happened. It's now they, they recognize this as sort of a, uh, heart problem that uh, sometimes shows up with, uh, with young athletes. But you just never know. God's, your life is in God's hands. Now you can determine the quality of that physical life sometimes, that if you uh, do not take care of yourself, then your quality of life during the 70 or 80 years that God gives you may not be as wonderful as the quality of life you could have had if you had been healthier. But uh, the length of time is determined by God. Third, we have the word zoe. This is the most common word that's used for life uh, throughout the Scripture. And in the, the, the Greek world, it, it referred to life as that which is animated, animal life and, and human life, not veg, vegetable life, not plant life, but human life and... Um, uh, human life and animal life was self-animated. Self, you determine where you could go, what you would do, things of that nature, and it is used to describe life in a lot of different ways. This is the word that is often used with eternal life. So it's a. It, it, you really have to look at the context to see what the nuance is uh, of this particular word. And then another word that uh, is found only 11 times in the New Testament, so it's somewhat rare, is the word bios, where we get our word biology or biosphere, is a word that's really used more in Greek by the first century to refer to a person's way of life, their manner of life, uh, or their living, uh, how they make a living, how they conduct their, their life or how they conduct their living. So that's the idea in, in bios. So you had these four different words, and they have uh, different emphasis as you go through the Scripture. The word that we usually find for life in Romans 6 is the word zoe, or some form of it, either with a, uh, a compound word, with a preposition for a verb, or something of that, uh, of that nature. When we talk about the spiritual life, I pointed out last time there's about four major groups of words that we should be aware of that we find in Romans 6 through 8. Uh, the first two are the ones I've been talking about, life and death. Life is used three times in Romans 6. They're all, all Zoe, eight times in Romans 6 through 8. So this is a significant concentration focusing on that word. Death is used seven times in Romans 6. 14 times in Romans 6 through 8. Uh, a word holiness or sanctification, which is not a, uh, a word or verbiage that is easily understood in our, our world today. We've gotten away from, because of a lack of biblical training in the schools, there are a lot of technical words that are used in Scripture that are, sound like foreign words to many people in our country today. That's all part of spiritual warfare and Satan's attack on a culture. The other day we were uh, talking with Jim Myers. Jim said something that I had uh, learned from him many, many years ago and had forgotten, but that was that when the, when the uh, 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 Marxists took over in, uh, in Russia in 1980, they had a self-conscious campaign to eliminate uh, words, especially words that were uh, technical words from the Bible, from the Russian language. And what they did was they, they identified all these words and they went out and they uh, destroyed all of the older dictionaries. And when they reprinted them, they took all these words out of the dictionaries. They took them out of any other literature that they were found in. They basically cleansed the uh, Russian language uh, 
of any words that had theological significance or Christian significance so that within 20 or 30, 40 years, people couldn't read their Bible with intelligence because they would find words that they couldn't understand and there was no dictionary they could look those words up in. And so the language, uh, the spiritual language and heritage in the Russian language was, was eliminated, was destroyed uh, by, uh, by the Soviets. So language is very, very important, and it's important to understand these words. Words like holiness and sanctification are words that are commonly used among Christians and in churches, but even most Christians don't understand these words today. They, they have a difficulty with them. Holiness or sanctification, I think um, in the uh, uh, King James Version or New King James translates the, the uh, Greek word usually related to this, hagiosmos, as, as holiness, and then in the New American Standard as sanctification. I'm not sure about NIV or some of the other uh, more modern translations. Uh, holiness or sanctification is mentioned two times in Romans 6, three times in Romans 6 through 9. Righteousness is mentioned five times in Romans 6, but a total of six times, so only one more time uh, outside of Romans 6. So righteousness is clearly a f- major focus in Romans Romans 6, that we are to live for righteousness. Now, some of the key words that are used biblically that we need to uh, become familiar with, uh, for example, the Hebrew word kadash. This is the verb form of the word kadash, and it is usually translated holy or to be made holy or to be uh, sanctified or to be uh, consecrated. That's another word that's used. Uh, It has various uh, uses and uh, uh, word forms that are developed from this. It basically, though, has the idea of being set apart to the service of God. When we think of holiness, we include in that word the idea of moral purity, but that has nothing to do with the word holy. Uh, In the ancient world, you also had the same word group applied to the priests and priestesses in the fertility religion. So they were basically cultic prostitutes. And so they're not morally pure, uh, but they were referred to by this same word group, the uh, Kedeshim. And so these are priests and priestesses who uh, in, in, uh, indulged in all manner of uh, sexual perversion as part of their the, the fertility religion. So that's not morally pure. So this word kadash doesn't have that as its core meaning. Um, it just means to be set apart uh, to the use of God. Uh, vessels in the temple were uh, holy. They were set apart to the use of God. A, a, a bowl, a pitcher that pours out water or wine, these things cannot be pure, morally pure or morally impure. They can't be moral at all. They're just, they're just clay pottery. Uh, so the basic meaning of the word is to be set apart to God. Now, in, in, uh, in the development of, of Jewish thought, this word is also used in a couple of different uh, forms to refer to prayer. The word kiddush is the uh, Jewish word for or Hebrew word for prayer, and it ref- actually refers to several different types of prayer. There is a kiddush that is said uh, when someone dies. This is the mourner's kiddush, but there are various other ty- uh, types of kiddush, and um, kiddush is the saying or the reciting. Uh, or when, when the kiddush prayer is recited, it is said to say kaddish. So those are two different forms. The word Kaddish, you hear the, the, the consonants are the same, K or Q, D, S, H. And so the, the uh, vowels change its usage or meaning. So uh, uh, Kaddash is the verb to be holy. And then a prayer is setting apart someone or something in terms of prayer to God. So it's called a Kiddush prayer. And saying it is to say Kaddish. And so this is a... Um, formed on this this basic idea of being set apart. Now, the Greeks had a word that had basically the same meaning, and that is the the verb form is hagiadzo. It's a a verb that's used 28 times in the New Testament, and it has the same idea. Something is set apart to the use of God. And so it is set apart for the service of God. So when we talk about a Christian being... Uh, positionally sanctified, what we're really saying is that at the moment of salvation, 
We enter into a new relationship of God. So in virtue of that new relationship, we are set apart for the purpose of serving God. That's part of why we are called into God's family, not just so you can have this self-absorbed idea that you're always going to go to heaven, you don't have to uh, be afraid of going to hell, but you're saved from God's perspective to serve him in this life. And that means that we have to not only be positionally uh, set apart to him, but also personally and experientially uh, set apart to him. So usually this word is translated with words such as consecrate, dedicate, sanctify, uh, but it basically all those words simply mean to be set apart to the service of God. The noun form that we find in this chapter in Romans 6 is hagiosmos. It's used 10 times in the New Testament, and it's the idea of holiness, sanctification, consecration. Uh, it's used for this primarily for this process, that S-M-O-S ending. Uh, it's used for this process of how we become sanctified experientially. The experiential part, as we'll see in a minute, is a process, uh, not positional. Then we have the word hagiasune, which uh, relates to a quality or an attribute, and it refers to, uh, hagiasune refers to someone who possesses the attribute of holiness or sanctification. Thus, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are positionally sanctified, you're hagiasune, and therefore you are a hagias. Hagias is the word for a saint. So anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a saint, not just someone who lives uh, somewhat of a, an exceptional life or uh, exceptionally dedicated to God or performs alleged miracles or all of these other things. A saint is anyone who is a believer uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, another form of this word is hagiotes, which refers uh, is translated sanctity, and then the uh, adjective or noun hagios, which is used uh, many times mostly to modify pneuma in terms of the Holy Spirit, but also to refer to believers as saints some 61 times. A different word is the word hosias, which refers to, uh, it's an adjective, it refers to someone in terms of their practice, their application of the word. It's related to experiential uh, sanctification. Now, another word that is uh, uh, quite different is this word, Eusebia, which is used 15 times in the New Testament, and it's usually translated godliness, which is an antiquated uh, English word. Uh, and when you re- read the word, uh, uh, word with L-I-N-E-S-S in it in English, that is uh, really likeness. It's a sort of an abbreviation and contraction of, the, of this idea of likeness. So godliness, it was originally god-likeness. Uh, uh, and holiness is like holy likeness, like holy, someone who is like holiness. So godliness is a somewhat antiquated English term, and a lot of people in the church don't really understand what godliness is, but it's someone who is manifesting the attributes and character of Christ in them, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. So it's someone who is growing to spiritual maturity. The uh, low-knighted dictionary, uh, Greek dictionary of semantic domains, uh, defines this very word, eusebia, as behavior reflecting correct uh, religious beliefs and attitudes. So I would modify that and say it's uh, behavior that reflects correct uh, biblical beliefs and attitudes and application. Thus, they conclude the believer's spiritual life. So they see, understand eusebia to be basically a synonym for the spiritual life. So those are our key words, death and life, righteousness, holiness, and understanding some of these different words that are built off of that for, for the spiritual life, that it is living a life uh, where positionally set apart to God's service because we're in the family of God, but we we haven't learned enough to be useful yet. So that's the process. It would be as if you were born into a family uh, that is well known for uh, some particular uh, activity. Maybe you're born into a family of, of, of business people, and so you're expected to be uh, involved in business. Or let's say you're born into a family where many people in the family are uh, academics. You're expected to be 
uh, perhaps follow in those shoes, or maybe uh, a merchant. Uh, in my family, it's rather interesting. My mother went my, on my mother's side. There were five generations that went to Sam Houston, uh, what is now Sam Houston State University. It was originally, I think, Sam Houston Normal, which was a teacher training school, and my great-great-great-grandmother, something like that. Five generations back went there. Every generation went there under a different name. Uh, But they were all teachers and married to teachers, and even on my grandfather's side, they were... uh, uh, I think my great-grandfather was the head of the, uh, the superintendent of schools in LaGrange, Texas. So I come by teaching on, in, a, uh, in sort of a natural sense, not a spiritual sense, somewhat naturally. That's a, 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 a heritage uh, that, I, that I have. And so I'm born, let's say, into a family of teachers, but that doesn't mean I can teach. That's my position. But then I have to grow up and mature and be taught, trained, educated, and that is taking my position and learning how to uh, how to develop it and implement it experientially. That's what it's like in the spiritual life. Positionally, we're set apart to serve God, but that doesn't mean we can do it right away. We haven't gone through that Romans 12-2 process of uh, being transformed by the renewing of our mind and learning how to truly serve God. So that is the process, though, of what uh, is referred to in the Bible as sanctification, also what we would call spiritual growth or the spiritual life. And so I just want to cover a few points in terms of a summary of the spiritual life. So as we get into Romans 6 and Romans 7 and 8, uh, we are going to be familiar with the vocabulary and the terminology. First of all, sanctification is a word that is used of three different stages in the believer's spiritual life. But the primary way in which we're using it here and use it most of the time is in the area of the second stage, which is also referred to as experiential sanctification, and sometimes progressive sanctification. Now, I'm not sure I really like the word progressive sanctification that much. It's one that has been used quite a bit by a lot of different people, but I think there's a, there is a, uh, a hidden meaning there that, that often goes with the word that it's, that it's automatic, and that you will automatically progress. And that goes along with lordship, salvation, the idea that if you're truly a believer, you're going to, uh, you're going to manifest it in certain ways. But you only manifest it if you grow. If you don't eat the right food, you don't grow in a healthy manner. And so spiritual growth is not uh, automatic. And so progressive sanctification, I think, may have that nuance to it, so I usually prefer the word experiential sanctification. This chart helps will help you sort of understand that. It's very uh, one we've used a lot, that there are these three phases or three stages in the, in the spiritual life. The first is one that takes place in an instant. At that second that you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that instant God declares you to be justified. He imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, declares you to be justified, regenerates you. You become a new creature in Christ. You're baptized by means of God, the Holy Spirit. All of this happens instantly and simultaneously in the plan of God, and we are a new spiritual being as a result of that. Now, that new spiritual being is referred to by Peter in 1 Peter 2.2 as a babe. And that babe has to grow and has to uh, grow on the nourishment of God's word. So the justified believer has to begin this process of growth. And that is the second way in which sanctification is used. Phase two, the spiritual life. The green line indicating that this is a growth, this is the growth time. And we are going to grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And it's very important to understand that that becomes your goal at the instant of salvation. And when you were a child, you wanted to be treated like an adult. In, in our natural world, natural framework, uh, physically, when we grow up, we, we want to be treated like an adult. We're t- we don't want our, ch- our parents treating us like children. But it's funny, in the spiritual life, most Christians want to stay children. They want to stay infants. They don't want to grow up. They don't want to do anything necessary to grow up. They want God to, to treat them like a spiritual 
uh, diaper baby all of their life, and they don't want to grow up, and they don't grow up. And uh, I remember hearing uh, Earl Rodmacher, I quote him frequently on this topic, Earl Rodmacher graduated from Dallas Seminary in the late 50s and went on to be the president and then chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary. And he taught at a pastor's conference we had back in the early 90s in in, uh, uh, Phoenix in Arizona. And he made the comment that the largest nursery in the world is the evangelical church. And most nursery workers, pastors, Sunday school teachers, church leaders, most nursery workers don't know how to get the, get the babies out of diapers. And that's one of those statements you hear somebody make, and it just, it, 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 it's like somebody threw a bucket of cold water in your face to get your attention, and you never forget it, because that's exactly true. Most pastors are so busy trying to teach the babies a few things that nobody else in the church can grow, because if all you're doing is teaching the babies, then you're not providing the kind of nourishment that the... Uh, teenagers and the adults need to grow. In fact, nobody's going to be, ever become an adolescent or an adult because they're still eating baby food. The only way you can get the babies to grow up is to teach the adults, and the babies will learn to feed on what they can feed on, and they do. Uh, people will always uh, rise to the level expected of them, and if you expect your congregation to only function at the level of infancy, then that's where they will stay. But if you expect them to grow and mature and really know the word, then they're going to get on board with it or go somewhere else. Um, the last phase is also uh, it's instantaneous as it happens, but it lasts forever. It's glorification when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. So we refer to phase one as positional sanctification Phase two as progressive or experiential sanctification, and phase three as ultimate sanctification. In phase one, as Paul talks about here in Romans 6, we're freed from the penalty of sin, and we have to learn how to be freed from the power of sin. We're freed from the power of sin, but we have to implement that in terms of our experiential growth. And in phase three, we are freed from the presence of sin. That That's what we mean by three stages, three phases of salvation or sanctification. Sanctification, then, point two, is the technical term used to describe the spiritual life, which is the process of the believer's growth from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And as the believer grows, he more, uh, as a believer grows, more and more of his life is set apart to the service of God. That's the goal, is serving God in and through our life. Third, Often, spirituality or sanctification is confused with a closely associated idea, which is morality or ethical living. Now, this is where people have trouble, because obviously there's morality and ethics in the Christian life. I'm not saying there's not. But morality and ethics alone is not the basis for spiritual growth. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Romans 7 is going to make it clear that you can't get to spiritual maturity by being moral or ethical because something is being left out. And what's being left out is the role of God the Holy Spirit. It's The Christian life isn't morality or ethics. It is learning to be to walk with the Holy Spirit and to let the Holy Spirit develop character in our life. So morality is a system of right and wrong, often based on a number of different factors that can be related to culture, social, and religious factors. Ethical systems can differ also from culture to culture, but from the most part, they, both, they basically agree on the basics, but it's something that anybody can do. Anybody, believer, unbeliever, Mormon, Muslim, Baptist, it doesn't matter. We can all be ethical. We can all be moral. But it's not going to get us anywhere. The fourth point is that the highest ethical code revealed to man is what's in the Mosaic Law. And it was for the whole nation of Israel, believer and unbeliever alike. So it wasn't related to spirituality. It was related to uh, the order of the nation. So point number five, that morality is the highest form, is designed 
uh, in its highest form, is designed as a system of ethics for believer and unbeliever to provide stability in government, society, and to protect freedom, property, and life. That's the function of morality and ethics. And, um, and an outgrowth of that is, is um, uh, understanding good manners and etiquette. Etiquette is designed to put a social control on our normal self-absorption. And that's why people need to teach their children good manners and order is because it provides them with a means of of structure and self-discipline so that when they're in society with other people, whether it's business or whether it's school or whether it's out in, in society, they can function without everything being all about them. So that's a function of ethics, but it's not spirituality. Uh, sixth point is that if an unbeliever can produce a moral life, then it's not based on the Holy Spirit. Something a Mormon can do, and Mormons, if they, in, according to Mormon theology, is, Mormonism is not Christianity. We're going to hear a lot about that since we have a presidential candidate who is a Mormon, but Mormonism is not Christianity. It is a cult. Now, that word cult's taken on a bad nuance since we had Jim Jones and the People's Temple and uh, various other uh, uh, what I'd call personality cults. There are different kinds of cults, and that word is a word that has been used throughout the years to refer to different religious systems and a system that is uh, an aberration of a larger system is referred to as a cult, a theological cult, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. These are all considered theological cults that are not orthodox Christianity. They're not Christian because they reject the deity of Christ or they reject other fundamental doctrines of Christianity such as the Trinity. And uh, But it's different from somebody who's got some sort of personality cult when they're out trying to brainwash everybody. Um, so there are many very, very moral people out there. But that doesn't get you anywhere in terms of uh, of spirituality. Scripture says that our uh, righteousness is like filthy rags. So Galatians 5, 16 through 18 talks about walking in the Spirit in 5, 16, uh, being led by the Spirit in 5, 18. That is essential for uh, spiritual growth. Uh, You can be moral, but if you're not walking by the Spirit, it's just morality. Seventh, the Christian view of the spiritual life is a system of ethics and virtue based on the work of God the Holy Spirit and uniquely dependent upon him. He's the critical factor. On the other hand, point eight, arrogance distorts morality into a system of works designed to impress God or gain divine approval. And arrogance manifests itself in lots of different wonderful ways, but eventually gets exposed. Biblical spirituality, on the other hand, is grounded upon the realization that Christ has done everything for us and on the basis of received, imputed, or credited righteousness under the filling, walking, leading ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the believer advances to spiritual maturity. It's all about walking by the Spirit. That's all I'm saying in these three or four points. That's the essential element. It's not saying moral versus immoral. It's morality and ethics, but it's a biblical morality and ethics that is developed internally by a walk by the Spirit. So last point, we must distinguish between systems of good works, high ethics, and morality, which can be performed by any unbeliever and biblical spirituality. And there are many systems of spirituality in Christianity that ignore the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'll get into this a little more as we go through this, but there's about nine or ten different models, so to speak, of uh, spirituality that have been developed by Christians down through the years. One of these is called the Reformed model of spirituality, which is usually associated with forms of Calvinism. And uh, frankly, up until the late 19th century and early 20th century, you didn't have any any of the major works on the Holy Spirit even discussed, walking by the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, or being led by the Spirit. The Spirit was virtually ignored in these works uh, um, uh, uh, when it came to the spiritual life. When it came to the spirit, Christian life, it was all about doing the right thing, being moral and being ethical, but there was no mention of the role of the Holy Spirit in these things, virtually ignored. 
by people like John Owens and uh, Abraham Kuyper and numerous other Reformed theologians in the uh, period from the Reformation up to the early 20th century. Frankly, I think only through the pressure of the Pentecostal movement, the Charismatic movement, dispensationalism, which began to emphasize the Holy Spirit in the late 19th century, did the Reformed Reformed theologians finally realize they better start talking about the Holy Spirit or their whole movement would, would be dead in their tracks. So that's that's the importance of it. So that gives us our orientation. Next time we'll come back and uh, start with an overview of Romans 6 and then get into some of the details uh, of the text. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Pray that we might be encouraged to press on to spiritual maturity, that we might be encouraged and strengthened to uh, study your word, to spend time in fellowship with you, letting walking by the Holy Spirit, and letting God the Holy Spirit take your word and uh, bring it into our lives and implement it in our lives that we might manifest the character of Christ in our life, knowing that this is done not by our own efforts, but by the work of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.